0: Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. Once again, I'm Jessica, bringing you this episode with the co founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Patrice Khan Colors. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. In this episode, Patrice discusses her new book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir, a poetic memoir and reflection on humanity. Necessary and timely, her story asks us to remember that protest in the interest of the most vulnerable comes from love. Leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement have been called terrorists, a threat to America. But in truth, they are loving women whose life experiences have led them to seek justice for those victimized by the powerful. In this meaningful, empowering account of survival, strength, and resilience, Patrice Khan-Cullors and Asha Bandele seek to change the culture that declares innocent Black life expendable. And now, here is Patrice Khan-Cullors, a Black Lives Matter memoir.
1: Hi, Google Seattle. Thank you. <laughs> I like lively audiences, so please feel free to, mm hmm, and ashe, and amen. Um, this is the introduction to the book, uh, We Are Stardust. Days after the election of 2016, Asha sent me a link to a talk by Afrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. We have to have hope, she says to me across 3,000 miles she in Brooklyn, me in Los Angeles. We listen together as Degrassi Tyson explains that the very atoms and molecules in our bodies are traceable to the crucibles and the centers of stars that once upon a time exploded into gas clouds. And those gas clouds formed other stars, and those stars possessed the divine right mix of properties needed to create not only planets, including our own, but also people, including us, me, and her. He is saying that not only are we in the universe, but that the universe is in us. He is saying that we, human beings, are literally made out of stardust. And I know when I hear Degrassi Tyson say this, that he is telling the truth because I have seen it since I was a child. The magic, the stardust stardust we are, and the lives of people I come from. I watched it in the labor of my mother, a Jehovah's Witness and a woman who worked two and sometimes three jobs at a time, keeping other people's children, working the reception desks at gyms, telemarketing, doing anything and everything for 16 hours a day, the whole of my childhood in the Van Nuys Barrio where we lived. My mother, Coco, Brown and Smooth, disowned by her family for the children she had she had as a very young and unmarried woman. My mother never gave up despite never making a living wage. I saw it in the thin brown face of my father, a boy out of Cajun country, a wounded healer whose addictions were born of a world that did not love him and told him so not, once but constantly. My father who always came back, who never stopped trying to be a better version of himself, there were no mirrors for. And I knew it because I am the 13th generation progeny of a people who survived the hulls of slave ships, survived the chains, the whips, the months laying in their own shit and piss, The human beings legislated as not human beings who watch their names, their languages, their goddesses and gods, the arc of their dances and beats of their songs, the majesty of their dreams, their families snatched up and stolen, disassembled and discarded, and despite this built language and honored God and created movement and upheld love. What could they be but stardust, these people who refused to die, who refused to accept the idea that their lives did not matter, that their children's lives did not matter.
2: Well, first let me just start by thanking you. Yeah. Um, it's, for me in particular, uh, I will be, I will start with a, a personal note of that that's very meaningful as a queer woman of color. Um, as a m- immigrant, as I mentioned to you, this for me is a, it's a big honor, so I appreciate that. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> um, I actually wanna talk a little bit about, um, you start by this story, by history, talking about your family, mm-hmm. um, in particular, and your mom, and your brother, um, and your father. And you focus a lot on this idea of collective responsibility versus personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd actually ask you to talk a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. Why do you believe that this focus that we have on personal responsibility can be so detrimental, particularly to black individuals? Mm -hmm. And what is there to gain from moving to this idea of collectivity?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Because I I was literally just talking to a reporter about this uh, um, when I got off the plane, which is, um, for many of us who grew up in poor neighborhoods, who grew up in poverty, um, the experience we had was it was our fault. We were blamed for our family unable, uh, our families being unable to feed us. We were blamed for our family's addictions. We were blamed for uh, the state uh, coming after our family. We were blamed for so many things that had everything to do with a system that was literally created to harm and decimate communities. And so the question becomes, um, who is accountable? Um, Is it the people who are most at the margins, the people who have experienced some of the most suffering, or is it the system? Uh, Is it local government? Is it state government? Is it federal government? Um, uh, And as we live under this current um, administration, Um, How do we hold it accountable? How do we hold local government accountable to actually produce um, laws that will support human beings? Produce policies that will support human beings? Um, And how do we um, challenge the idea that a young mother who Um, had a child at 16, deserves to be kicked out of her home, deserves to um, not receive the type of support and aid just because she had children out of wedlock or just because she had a child at a young age. I mean, these are the kinds of questions that we need to ask ourselves. And I think what happens, because we live in a culture and in America in particular, that really values personal responsibility, really values the idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, Um, well, that only actually works for certain people. Um, And the pulling up by your bootstraps um, is designed for certain people and and not designed for others. And when we can have an honest conversation about the design, um, then we can have an honest conversation about what it should look like, um, how it should look differently. And so um, not only am I challenging the idea of personal responsibility, um, which which I think is different than asking people to be accountable, I wanna like differentiate differentiate those terms. Um, someone being responsible um, for um, their own poverty, um, no. But someone being accountable, um, being accountable to their family, right? My mother was accountable to us because she worked 16 hours a day, um, but she wasn't responsible for her poverty. And I think we have to be able to uh, differentiate that. And the last thing I'll say on this is, um, it, it will, it will take all of us. It has to be all of us to change this system, to change this place, to collectively come together and make a decision. As many of us say in, in Black Lives Matter, when black people get free, everybody else gets a little bit more free.
2: Um, on, uh, on the Black Lives Matter movement in particular, the, the shooting of Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of, of, of his shooter is clearly a bit, an important moment mm-hmm. in that movement. Um, can you speak a little bit as to why that that moment uh, resonated with you so powerfully when it did?
1: Yes, and and what you're going to notice is I'm always going to kind of take a few steps back um, because the moment is the moment. But there's some there's things that lead up to the moment that actually makes that moment the moment. So for me, um, it was uh, uh, I come from a generation. I'm born in '83, and so I come from a generation that. Um, witnessed um, Reagan, um, witnessed um, the Bushes, witnessed the Clintons. And in those presidencies, what we got to see was a ratcheting up of the war on drugs, a ratcheting up of mass incarceration, um, and ratcheting up uh, mass criminalization of very particular communities, black communities in particular. Uh, And as I grow up, and as many of us grow up in this in this particular era and age group, um, we're, the, we're sort of the sacrificed ones. We're the children who are being impacted by deindustrialization. We're the children who are being impacted by the militarized policing. And so once we get to Trayvon Martin, so many things have happened. 92, Rodney King, um, Oscar Grant has happened. And then Trayvon, although not killed by law enforcement, he's killed by a vigilante who's empowered by a state that empowers law enforcement. And so, um, I didn't think that uh, George Zimmerman was going to get off. Didn't I was like, he killed Trayvon Martin. We all knew that. Jerry knew it. I didn't think he was going to get murder, but I definitely didn't think he was going to get to go home. And when he did on July 13th of 2013. I was very clear that that wasn't going to be the period to the story. Um, That we had to do more, um, that I had to do more personally. And as I heard Sabrina Fulton, uh, Trayvon Martin's mother, specifically speak out um, uh, through tears, through grief, and and call on the people of of this country um, to show up for her child, um, to show up for her, um, I just felt like it was incredibly important. And so I... I was on social media like many of us are um, and angry and upset and trying to figure out how to understand what was happening and I came across a good friend's Facebook post, Alicia Garza, and she wrote Black Lives Matter and then I put a hashtag on it. And Alicia was like, what's a hashtag? And I was like, <laughs> it's this thing that can go viral. <laughs> um, but I'm also a trained organizer, so I didn't just, I wasn't just interested in an online campaign. Um, I was interested in how we translated Black Lives Matter to the ground, and how it really uh, could be a grassroots movement that can bubble up, change the world, change the country. And on July fifteenth, when we solidified Black Lives Matter as a political project, I wrote on social media again. I said, hey, Alicia and I have started this project called Black Lives Matter, and we hope that it will impact more than we can ever imagine.
2: One of the things that you talk about a lot in your book is taking that hashtag. You say that, I think, hashtag to movement, mm-hmm. so essentially creating power mm-hmm. under this umbrella of Black Lives Matter. What has that journey been like? What are some of the lessons you've learned, mm-hmm. challenges,
1: victories? Well, we have to remember that Black Lives Matter really started organically. It started online, this organic moment, and it was very quickly um, galvanized into a political project. Really, those, that first year was nurturing it, having people talk about Black Lives Matter in their organizations, at their offices, um, having um, a lot of like conference calls. Let's let's how do we use this? Taking it onto the streets during protests. Um, but I would say that the height of uh, BLM or where it becomes um, worldwide is after the non-indictment of Darren Wilson, and uh, after uh, Mike Brown's um, killer is uh, not indicted. That is the first time it goes viral on social media, and I remember being like, "We have to do more." Um, We have to figure out what's the next step, what's the next angle. And um, 600 of us did a Black Lives Matter freedom ride, and we drove into St. Louis. And before we drove in, we called folks, you know, uh, folks let us know we could come in. Uh, We're not just showing up to people's neighborhoods. And um, in that, um, uh, on that three day journey, uh, because it was only three days, uh, there was two commitments we made. The first commitment was a show up for the people of St. Louis. Um, to let them know that uh, we're not gonna allow for um, Ferguson PD and every other municipality, uh, law enforcement municipality to treat this community this way without us watching, witnessing and going back and telling our communities. But the second thing that we said um, that uh, we wanted to make sure we did is go back home and organize. Um, and build what we would then build, which is the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which is an organization of 40 chapters around the globe, here in the US, in Canada, and the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah.
2: One of the things that you discuss on the Black Lives Matter in particular is this idea of creating a hashtag that people would be able, would embrace. And the word black ends up being sort of a big point of salience uh, when it comes to it. and. More, I think more recently in the tech community we've had, um, one of diversity leaders say that if you have 12, I think it's white, blue-eyed men in a room, uh, it's a diverse room because people have different ideas. (laughs) So I wanted you to speak a little bit about intersectionality, which is such a big part of your book, Mm -hmm. but also how do we have a genuine conversation about
1: intersectionality
2: um, without it becoming an all-lives-matter conversation? Like, How do we actually Mm -hmm. bring that in a way that is genuine?
1: Right, how do you have a conversation and practice about intersectionality without whitewashing it. Yes. Yes, because um, that can happen. And um, what, what is important as we understand where words come from and, and that words, what's been really interesting about this administration is they basically made words, um, uh, what's the word? Meaningless. Meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> you could say, I hate all n-words and then the next breath you could say i'm not a racist that doesn't even make sense right but it becomes an argument not just in media but it also becomes an argument in people's relationships and friendships and well that guy said i could say this i'd still not be a racist Um, and i think uh with enter the word intersectionality really comes from a woman named kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and she created it because she was trying to challenge the conversation specifically in the black community um, that the only people who have the right to talk about um, black folks' freedom is cis black men. And she was really trying to challenge the idea that um, if, we're, if we are going to fight on behalf of black, black people, we have to fight on behalf of black girls and women as well. Um, and that there is a very specific type of experience that black women have in relationship to race and that um, patriarchy is a part of racism when it comes to uh, to black women. And that if we don't have those conversations, but more importantly, if we don't practice differently, we're going to just end up in the very same cycle that we've been in and not gaining the things that we really want to gain. So it's important, I think, if you value uh, the lives of people um, this is a conversation about what we value. If we value that certain people's lives need to be prioritized, because we've seen them be deprioritized, if we value that human, all human beings deserve to be treated well, with dignity, with care, um, then we're going to be able to have more nuanced conversations about not just Black Lives Matter but me too, women's March, times up I mean all, the immigrant rights movement, all these movements are in relationship to one another. And I think it's important um, that we sometimes we get caught up in the rhetoric of politics um, and I like to, to reel it back a bit and remind people of values what are our values and and that, um, is often the place where it, it opens up something new for people to have a different type of conversation about these things that often can feel very challenging to talk about.
2: On the on the, the issue of, of black women in particular, um, the with the election of Trump, and it's one of the things you mentioned in your book, is that you felt particularly powerless because 96% of black women didn't vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the, the Jones election, this idea mm-hmm. that black women essentially like saved... Um, the state of Alabama, um, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do you think that this is a pivotal moment mm-hmm. of of looking at Black women as uh, a part of electoral power, or do you think that this sort of just is a passing concern now since we had these consecutive elections mm-hmm. where the numbers were so stark?
1: I think you know, in a lot of ways, Black women historically have always been at the helm of movements. We've always been um, at the sort of intersection of both trying to um, save our families and save the world, and um, what we're seeing and what we saw with the election of 45 and with the election of um, the the getting Roy Moore not into office is Black women galvanizing our power and being strategic about it. You know, I think there was a big um, fight because. People were like, well, why did you go for Jones? And people and, and folks had to counter that and say, actually, this was strategic. You know, this is the other person that was running. And we needed to make sure we didn't have this other person in charge. So this idea, um, I think often that happens that black people just sort of like naturally do these things, or we don't have a plan, or there's no strategy, or it's all organic. Um, sometimes those things are true, but oftentimes people have a strategy, like Rosa Parks. It's very upsetting that people think that Rosa Parks just sat down on a chair and then some white guy came over and she was like, I'm not going to get up today. <laughs> it's not how it happened, y'all. There was a strategy behind it and she was a strategist. I mean, she was one of our most brilliant strategists and we don't hear that very often. We don't, we don't get that story. We get this very ageist, weird, like, feminizing story of how she just happened to be too old and tired to get up, um, rather than they sat in rooms trying to figure out how were they going to boycott this system that literally got most, almost all the black population to, to work and to school. How do you convince black people to um, not get on a bus that can jeopardize their jobs and their, and their schooling? And that moment with Rosa Parks not getting up is just the moment but there was all these other moments before that got us there. And so I just I think that's important, because um, I, I, part of what the book is trying to do is also really let people know that there is a strategy. And so much of the time that, we, that Black Lives Matter has been um, developing, there has been all this criticism. Well, what do you, what's the, what do you all really want? What are your goals? Um, and this book is trying to um, lay the record straight.
2: So I, um, I wanna make sure that we have a lot of time for questions from the floor. So I have um, one last question I wanna make sure I ask you. Um, and then we'll open up. So if you wanna start lining um, the microphone, we'll do that. Um, a question, one of the things that I, uh, that is a, a theme that you draw for the entirety of the book is this idea of your community. Um, and you're always pulling people, and I think one of the things that you said that I thought was very powerful is that they wouldn't let me be erased, I will never let them be erased. Um, can you speak a little bit as to why black community in particular is so important to you? Mm-hmm. Like what is it about your community that you feel is, is necessary um, and, and sort of the world we're living in today? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a simple answer, which is I grew up around some of the most brilliant and talented and powerful people, my siblings, my parents, and yet um, they received very, very little support for their gifts, their talents. And that is solely based off of race and racism and classism. And so um, to witness that, um, I also ended up, uh, and I talk about this in the book, is I end up being sort of plucked from my um, elementary school and labeled as gifted. And so I go to a separate, totally separate system than my siblings do, which which happens to make me see how other people live. Um, Because you don't know how other people live unless you go see it. Um, and in that experience, you know, going from my own neighborhood, which was a small suburb um, outside of the inner city of uh, Los Angeles that was mostly poor working class, um, surrounded by white suburb, um, and that's where I ended up going to school, I got to see firsthand um, just how classism plays out, just how racism plays out. And that just based off of your um, socioeconomic background or your race, that you're entire um, life changes um, and what's predicted for you. And so, you know, I always say my mother would be like the most amazing therapist. She's like the person who I learned how to have important and courageous conversations from. Um, And yet she was relegated to menial jobs um, because she never got a a middle school diploma, high school diploma. And so there's these things that, um, these barriers that exist for poor folks that um, are solely because people don't have money. And I think for for the community I grew up in, black communities in particular, um, there's this longing that I have for us to be fully seen and fully realized because I know what gifts we have.
3: So how do you deal with um, trying to put forward the ideas of Black Lives Matter and deal with the fact that people
1: Right, later on, you get very antagonized and go, Well, all lives matter, or yeah, blue yeah. lives matter. Yeah, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. as the opposite of black lives matter. Right. And a lot of different ways. Depends on the audience, depends on the person. Um, you know, some days I choose not to even answer those questions, um, just for my own sanity. Um, because the, the reality is, and for folks who are in the room who are sort of on the fence around all lives matter versus black lives matter, all lives do matter. Um, that's actually not the argument right now. Um, and black lives matter is really just black lives matter too. And so black lives matter is not about exclusion. It's about focusing. And doesn't a community who has spent uh, 500 years in this country get to decide how we focus our energy? And um, aren't we allowed to ask people, allies, to join us in this fight? Um, And I think um, what I try to do in those conversations is is really challenge people, um, sometimes gently, sometimes not so gently, about what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world where where the state is allowed to execute people and get away with it? Do you want to live in a world where someone can get stopped for a broken light, end up in jail, and then not survive it? Do you wanna live in a world where people, only because they don't have physical papers, are allowed to be ripped from their families and deported to, to back to their so-called countries? What kind of world do we wanna live in? That's what Black Lives Matter is asking us. It's asking us to think about the world we wanna live in. And okay, if you wanna live in a world um, where terrible things happen to human beings, then, Maybe I shouldn't be talking to you about this.
2: So my question is, aside from your work, what's um, one piece of literature or art or entertainment that right now in this moment that we're in
1: really gives you hope for the future? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, Well, I really love Octavia Butler. Other people in the audience? Okay, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, uh, although it's kind of sinister, sometimes morbid, um, she opens up a portal around how to have really hard conversations about race and class and gender, and um, this most and some of the most beautiful and courageous and innovative ways. Um, and and more pop culture. I definitely think the work that Issa Rae is doing and Lena Waith is doing, in particular, um, is very exciting and powerful and fresh and innovative. Um, yeah, that's what I got for you, yeah.
0: So thank you again for coming. Um, I understand that you were awarded a Peace Prize. Hello. Um, can you talk a little the bit about that? <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, congratulations, people here don't know. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about um, what you've seen in, in how the movement has been received outside the U.S. versus inside the U.S.?
1: Yeah, you always like something better when it's outside. Um, the Black Lives Matter Global Network received the um, Sydney Peace Prize last year. Um, very amazing. I had no idea what it was before I received it. And when we received it, I looked it up, and I was like, oh, this is a very big deal. Uh, <laughs> and um, folks like Naomi Klein have received it. Desmond Tutu has received it. Noam Chomsky has received it. Uh, and I think we were at literally the youngest people who've ever received the Sydney Peace Prize. Um, and we were um, not only welcomed by the country of Australia. We were welcomed by black folks in Australia, Aboriginal population, First Nations people, um, and also really welcomed by the media. I mean, it was a very, very different experience um, than the type of experience we've had here um, starting Black Lives Matter. And I think it also challenged this idea of us being a terrorist group or organization. because someone wrote about it, they're like, "Black Lives Matter just want a peace prize. You could stop calling the terrorist organization." <laughs> um, but it was a—it's been very powerful. Um, to the folks of Australia were looking to us um, around how they deal with race and racism in their country, um, and um, how to really have uh, a new type of movement um, that—that's hopefully gonna bubble up there. Uh, and it was um, more more than inspiring, more than I could ever have imagined. Um, and I, I'm very grateful that our network was honored w- with the, um, the Peace Prize.
2: But I actually wanna follow up on uh,
1: the term terrorist.
2: Yeah. Because it's a term that is very important in your book. And like... It's the
1: title. When they call
2: exactly. <laughs> That's how you know it's important. Um, can you speak a little bit as to why that word has so much
1: power? Well, um, Raise your hand if you or people in your community have ever been called a terrorist. Raise your hand high. Now look around. (laughs) Right. Um, So the first time Black Lives Matter is called a terrorist organization, there's two things that come up for me. The first one is um, devastation. Um, because simply I'm with these folks every single day. I know exactly what we're doing. I know what type of sacrifice we're giving. Um, the other is um, a, a sense of serious fear, because the moment the government starts calling people terrorists, that means there's going to be a war on the people. And so um, I think what's important in this book and the conversation that I'm trying to have is what um, do we mean when we, when we mean terrorists? And who ends up being labeled as such? And what we've seen, for especially for black people in this country, is whenever we decide uh, that we're going to fight for our freedom, that we're going to fight for our dignity, for, um, um, uh, we're going to fight for our humanity, uh, that there's a label that's slapped on us or our community to undermine our efforts, but also to criminalize our efforts. And so, um, what we've seen, and, and I'll just ask another question of the audience. How many of you have um, heard of the Black Identity Extremist label? Yeah. Who made that up? I Jeff what? I thought it was Jeff Sessions. Yeah, FBI. It was probably Jeff Sessions. He's probably did <laughs> the, with the FBI. <laughs> He's definitely defending that identity. <laughs> Um, An identity that was literally crafted and created by the FBI uh, and 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 many of us saw it in a leaked report um, that uh, that came out in August 2017. And the report literally um, is claiming that black activists have a new identity in which um, we are more violent towards law enforcement. Um, And um, for many of us that have studied movements or have elders in the movement, like Angela Davis, um, Erica Huggins, um, in our conversations with them, they're like, yeah, this is the beginning of what it looks like to be criminalized by the state for your activism, um, similar to what COINTELPRO did. And so the terrorist conversation is um, interrogating this idea that black activists, people who are literally trying to fight for American democracy are terrorists and yet the people who are trying to change and reform are terrorizing our communities. Um, and, and how much um, we have to be um, challenging those terms, um, challenging that language, um, and showing up differently, I think, in this moment. What is different from 30, 40 years ago is there were no elected officials trying to fight for the Panther Party. Um, now, given the, the given what we know about COINTELPRO, given that we know that they assassinated people, ripped families apart, and ripped a really powerful movement apart, um, there are um, elected officials, specifically the Congressional Black Caucus, that is tr- standing up to the FBI around this term. And Congresswoman Karen Bass has been leading the crusade around that. There are a
2: couple questions.
1: You talked a little bit about the vir- virality of the Black Lives Matter hashtag. Yeah. Um, and so, I guess I'm interested in so like in recent times Trump has kind of taken over news and like you hear a lot about white supremacy yes. and you hear a lot about these other things yeah. that kind of suck up all of the media attention. Yeah. And I'm wondering like to what extent do you think it's important for Black Lives Matter to have that viral aspect and like what 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 do you think are like, what's the future of the Black Lives Matter movement um, in, a, in an environment where it becomes more difficult to have a voice? That's great. It's um, a great question. Well, what I will say is um, sometimes in movements, you need to be a little bit more quiet. Um, being out there all the time makes you vulnerable, and, and it's made us vulnerable. Um, and sometimes that's not always for the best. So. Um, Going viral is not the goal necessarily. Um, it, it has a great outcome. Uh, I think the better question is how do you sustain us? How do we sustain ourselves? Um, and especially as we are building out a global network, how do we create infra- infrastructure and institution power that can challenge and power uh, challenge the current power structure? That's what we're most interested in this moment. We're interested in the long haul, um, and uh, I I think. I think we're on to something. And I think we are developing a new type of experiment um, that is centering black folks in particular.
2: Hello. Mm -hmm. Thank you for speaking to us. You are amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, I want to ask you a question about how you think capitalism and um, large capitalist entities, uh, such as Google, uh, may affect Black Lives Matter either positively or negatively?
1: Um, such a good question. Hmm. Well, what I will say uh, is um, living in this current infrastructure that we live in that is a capitalist infrastructure is not sustainable for anybody. Um, and as the rich literally get richer and the poor literally get poorer, um, we have to have a long-term solution around not only how we're going to save human beings, but how we're going to save the planet. And um, we unfortunately have an administration that doesn't believe in climate change. It like drives me nuts, (laughs) y'all. We're literally burning up in some places and other places are drowning (laughs) because uh, the Earth's equilibrium is so off. Um, And so I think the long-term conversation is, is capitalism a sustainable model? And many of us know it's not. Um, so what does that mean? And that I don't have the answer to, um, but I have a lot of questions about. Uh, and I think our movement often is trying to figure that out and have questions about. I think you know Google is such an interesting place, right? It's both. Um, it's worldwide. It's a huge corporation. It also, will bring one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter to talk to its employees. It's like such an interesting contradiction. Uh, And um, my hope is that uh, I'm not going to be able to change Google necessarily. But I think the hope in this certain moment is to change the hearts and minds of people who work here um, and how we make decisions about how we relate to the planet and other human beings.
2: That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, Let me, oh, there's a question. No? (laughs) Please go ahead. Okay. <laughs> I, I I have already spoken way more <laughs> than so anyone
3: wants. It's, it's slightly different take on. Uh, so you mentioned about sort of the strategic goals of yeah. uh, making a sustainable movement for the long term. Um, specifically around some of the things that sparked the movement, right? Uh, police brutality, some of this uh, violence. Uh, do you or does the movement have shorter term goals, either through activism or legislative changes, to try and planned down some of the more egregious policing tactics, uh, the ridiculous use of force type of uh, mandates. Yeah. Are, there, are there specific quotes around that? that yeah, actually. About? I was
1: just on a phone call about it before I got here talking to our lawyers. Um, it's a great question because someone asked me, the, well, Time Magazine asked me the other day and said, well, will there ever be a Me Too of racism? And I was like, well, it's called Black Lives Matter. <laughs> <laughs> But what I think is interesting, I think what he was trying to ask, actually, was, was Me Too has been successful at literally knocking down some of the biggest power players in Hollywood. I mean, people that we never thought would be sort of taken out, you know, taken out of Hollywood have been. Um, whether or not they have huge pensions or they could still live their lives, it's a whole nother question. But symbolically, what that has shown us is that sexual assault and violence is not going to be... Um, taken lightly anymore. And he was trying to ask, well, how come law enforcement hasn't been, we haven't had the same impact on law enforcement. And what I did is I said, well, that's not Black Lives Matter fault. We've done everything we can to hold law enforcement accountable, but rather um, we have to have a larger conversation about the people who um, keep law enforcement in power, elected officials, um, county board of supervisors, state governors. The laws, I mean, they're literally, um, in the US I think there's over 22 uh, Peace peace Officer Bill of Rights, right? Which literally are um, uh, a document that gives rights to peace officers that pretty much uh, excludes them from being held accountable for their acts. California and Seattle have some of the worst Police Officer Bill of of Rights. And so much of what we're trying to do is um, go state by state, city by city, county by county, changing those laws. Uh, The first experiment is going to be California uh, because we have some of the most egregious laws, but also because we have some of the most progressive um, legislators. So can we get enough legislators to say, we can't allow this to happen anymore? Can we get enough district attorneys to say, because it's in a district attorney's right to prosecute an officer, but they more often err on that. So the work, I think, is in the next phase, specifically around law enforcement violence, is trying to change laws. I think that we've hit, a, we've hit a road. We have to take things to the ballot box and galvanize our movement to push new laws forward. And it's just a
3: quick follow-up. Yeah. Do you, uh, does it, do you have a specific
1: view on the use of body cameras? The I, do. It, I do. I um, do. We have cell phones. So that's one. Um, body cameras are um, millions and millions of dollars. And oftentimes the accountability let me flip it, the responsibility is on the officer to turn on the body camera. Um, So how many times have we seen law enforcement not turn on their body camera? Almost all the time. And so um, I think it's an interesting demand, but if we make body cameras as the solution to ending law enforcement violence, then we've lost a long time ago.
3: The term terrorism has erupted because there has been some incidents sometimes at some protest where there you know there may be violence that has occurred, right? Um, does do you ever come to a point where your organization just comes out and flat out you know denounce something and say you know this is not something that we condone? Sometimes you cannot be you know responsible for everybody at yeah. the protest, um, but is there? in the same way where you ally with some people for the same cause and you know, under the name of internationality, although I hate that word, mm-hmm. but do you, you know, do you do both? Is there, is there a time where you, you, know, you throw the power of the network behind a cause and you follow through with it that may not be necessarily under the broad umbrella of Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter? And is there a time where you see some things either at a protest or even inside your own movement where you go out there and you just denounce it?
1: I mean, yes. um, I think the Dallas shooting, we denounced immediately, uh, Micah Johnson, um, and I talk about that in the book. But, uh, you know, there's never been a shooting from someone who said that they did uh, on behalf of Black Lives Matter. It's always been attributed to Black Lives Matter. And our movement from from JUMP has been nonviolent. I mean, that's just been clear. Uh, in fact, we've been calling for law enforcement to stop killing us, right? Uh, and I think the conversation about um, you know, violence versus nonviolence is a really important political conversation. And frankly, um, we're in a different time period. You know, The Panthers went on Sacramento steps and had guns, and we would never do that because we see the result. Black person doesn't need a gun to get killed. <laughs> So I think for us, the most effective and safe strategy is a nonviolent strategy in this particular moment.
3: Can I just ask a quick follow-up mm-hmm. to this? So um, in social media, usually whatever the hashtag is and the parallelity of things overpower you know, the narrative. So if tomorrow something was going on with the movement and I wanted to check, OK, what's the official word from your network, where would I go?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, you mean like where on what social media pages? Right. pages
3: or just online or
1: websites. So blacklivesmatter.com is our website. On Facebook, we're verified. Um, do not use any other Facebook profile, uh, because there's tons, and they're not verified, and some of them will steal your money. Um, and on Twitter, we are Black Lives Matter, but we're BLK. And same on Instagram. And the most updated sort of like stand that we have on something is usually going to be in our Twitter account.
3: Uh, thank you for speaking. Oh,
1: um, yeah.
3: And a question about intersectionality and the labor movement? Yeah. Like,
1: where do they lie? Uh,
3: well, yeah, I mean, I don't think police unions should be able to bargain about whether or not they respect people's human rights. Yes. Uh, can the labor <laughs> movement still be an ally to Black to Lives Matter?
1: This is such a good question, and these are. You know, I've sat with a lot of labor folks around this, um, so much so that we've really challenged labor to have law enforcement as part of their um, union. Uh, I think, honestly, um, in a lot of places, law enforcement is the strongest union. Um, They have the, um, the most lawyers, they have the most money, and um, they have a lot of power. So when we've talked to presidents and we've talked to um, union organizers, they're a pain in the butt in unions. They are because they're the first ones to like, stop any sort of democratic process or challenge any sort of progressive statement that the union wants to put out. Um, but until unions stand, until union leadership stands up to law enforcement unions, we're gonna continue in the same cycle. Um, and I think, you know, I I've spoke to one of, um, I, I, I don't remember which um, Black Panther member said this to us, but they said that we're, we are the first effective movement to actually challenge law enforcement, to actually um, curb the community and the culture that believes law enforcement first. Um, and that to me is just the beginning of really trying to change the seats of power, um, but right now law enforcement still has all the bargaining chips.
2: Earlier, an earlier question asked you, "What in art gives you hope? Yeah. Um, what in politics and Calpurnia and you know Oprah 2020? Yeah. 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 But what else? <laughs> what else gives you hope in politics? And I, I'm an engineer. I'm not going to be a political activist. Right. Um, mm-hmm. What can I do?
1: Great. That's a great question. Um, okay. Two things. One, I'm going to start with your last question. What can you do? Everybody has their lane. Um, I think um, that uh, you don't have to go out into the streets to be active, um, to uh, be aware, to challenge um, awful things that happen to people. Um, You can um, have conversations. You can um, be a part of book clubs. You can be a part of dialogues. I think even coming into this room is an act of solidarity and a, a, a show of good faith. Um, we also come from families. How are we raising our children? How are we talking to our, our wives, our husbands, our sisters, our brothers? Um, you know, what I usually get the question around, how can white people help? The first thing I say is go talk to your family members. Have those hard and challenging conversations that we often say, oh, I'm just going to ignore that, right? Um, I think how we're living our lives is just as important um, as uh, if you're out in the streets being politically active. What was your first question?
3: What gives
2: you what, what, what hope?
1: Um, political hope, right. I'm excited about um, how many people that are running for office that are folks of color, women of color. Um, I'm excited about um, the conversations that are happening around political power. Um, I'm excited about how engaged, you know, my mother, is, I mean, I've been in this work for a long time, and my mother never talks about politics. And she'll like call me and curse out Trump. And, and I'm like, oh, you're, you're feeling engaged in this moment, even if it's against a person. There's something about this moment that's making people want to do more than they've ever done before. And on uh, the one hand, it's devastating to witness so many executive orders totally rip through our constitution, and on the other hand, it's brilliant to see so many people saying, No, I'm not going to stand for this. Thank you.
2: Yeah, um, I want to make sure wait, no microphone. There you go. <laughs> um, I want to make sure we leave some time for uh signing and for and not just because people are like. No. <laughs> um, I have more questions um, I want to make sure we leave some time for signing and for people to actually uh, get the book um, so again, thank you Thank we you. really appreciate you taking the time thank you all so much thank you all
0: for. thanks for listening if you have any feedback about this or any other episode we'd love to hear from you You can visit g.co slash Talks at Google slash Podcast Feedback to leave your comments. To discover more of our amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash Talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash Talks, or via our Twitter handle, at Talks at Google. Talk soon!